Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Now, last week we began a series together um, looking at the events of Holy Week. Last week um, we looked at Palm Sunday. Um, uh, uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey um, as, uh, as, uh, as the people uh, shouted Hosanna and waved their palms. And this morning we're looking at what happens the next day. Um, what happens on uh, Monday when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. So, Mark the 11th chapter, verses 15 through 19. Hear now the word of our Lord. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is the Word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. It makes a difference where you're sitting. Where you sit, your vantage point, determines how you see an entire situation, doesn't it? Imagine you're watching a Broadway musical. If you're sitting in the front row, you can see all the tiny details, the facial expressions, the nuances. But you might be overwhelmed. There's just too much to look at. Focus over here, you'll miss what's happening over there. But imagine you're sitting way in the back, up in the balcony. From there, you can see the whole picture. You can see everything that's going on all at once. See the whole set, all the choreography. But you miss those tiny details, the, the little winks and grins and nods. Imagine you won a contest and you get to watch the performance from backstage. There, you only see the backs of the actors' heads. You're missing some things, but you're excited because you get to see stuff that no one else gets to see. You see the actors waiting in the wings, whispering their lines to themselves. The stage manager frantically yelling into her microphone. The union guys operating the levers and pulleys up above. It makes a difference where you're sitting, doesn't it? Our scripture passage this morning describes a startling incident that occurs the day after Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And depending on where you're sitting, your perspective on what happened that day and what it means will be entirely different. Imagine for a moment you're the guy sitting at one of those tables that Jesus famously flipped over. Imagine you're a money changer. See, you're just doing your job. 
You just got up and went to work on this Monday morning like everybody else. Your place of work just happens to be the temple in Jerusalem, the court of nations to be exact. The Jerusalem temple is a place of worship, but like all big temples in the ancient world, it's also a treasury. People store their valuables there because they know they'll be safe. As a money changer, you're basically the bank teller. You deal with the clientele. It's also your job to exchange currency. If someone comes from out of town and needs coins that they can use at the marketplace, you exchange them. Also, if someone comes to the temple wanting to make a sacrifice but they don't have the animal or is inconvenient to bring it with them, they can buy it from you at what could be described as baseball stadium prices. Usually, this court is wide open with only a few money-changing tables. But, during Passover week, there are money-changing tables everywhere. The usual assortment of panhandlers and con artists who are normally lying into walls and calling out to religious folks for alms, they're cleared out so that room can be made for more tables. Because the temple is going to be packed this week. People come from all over the world to worship. It's going to be all hands on deck during Passover. So, you're sitting there at your table on Monday morning taking coins for some, from some Greek-speaking Jew who just needs to convert currency into doves. You're carefully writing the transaction down in your log, and you don't notice the commotion going on all around you. Suddenly, your table goes out from under your arms. It's flipped upside down. The coins were organized into neat little piles are clattering on the floor, and, and, and there's a, 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 a bent cage on the floor, and it's got doves fluttering out. You look up, and there's a rabbi with a whip. He's got an unruly mob with him, cheering and egging him on. All your co-workers are running for the exits, and so you decide to do the same. Because when the Roman soldiers show up, they usually don't stop to sort out who's who. Running for the exit, you're more annoyed than scared. You look back at the man with the whip. He has a kind face, but he seemed genuinely angry. You don't know anything about him. But from where you're sitting, he's crazy. In any case, your day is ruined. It's going to be a nightmare to set that table all back up again. Now, let's switch seats. Now, imagine you're one of the chief priests. When Jesus storms into the temple, you're watching from behind a column. To you, he's not crazy. He's dangerous. As you watch suspiciously, you know the criticism Jesus is leveling. So you've memorized all the holy texts. You know what they mean and why they're important. When Jesus accuses the temple of being a den of robbers, he's quoting the seventh chapter of Jeremiah, where the prophet says, Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord.
spicy stuff. See, Jesus is accusing you with those words. He's pointing a finger at you and saying that you are as bad as the religious establishment in Jeremiah's day. You know, the ones who allowed idolatry and injustice to flourish. Under their watch, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And he's saying you are just like them. How dare he? Sure, you've had to make compromises. Sure, you acquiesced to the Romans. You let them use the treasury to fund their projects. Let them choose religious leaders who will be friendly to their causes. But, but it's either that or see the, Rome, see the Romans invade the temple and see it destroyed again. Peace is fragile. Yes, you're wealthy. But frankly, it's God's plan. God himself instituted the hereditary priesthood. It's not your fault you were born into aristocracy and that you live a far better life than your fellow countrymen. You're not a robber. You've not stolen anything. You take what is your right. And if that means a full belly and the finest clothes, so be it. This self-righteous rabbi would see it all come crashing down. The peace you forge with Rome is delicate. The deals you make aren't pretty, but they're necessary. They're necessary to keep Jerusalem from falling. This Jesus is a threat to all of that. Those people following him think he's a Messiah. They think he's going to bring revolution. You've seen Messiahs before. They and their followers all end up on a cross before it's over. Innocent people will die. And for what? From where you sit, Jesus is dangerous. See, those sitting at the money-changing table saw Jesus as a lunatic. Those chief priests sitting in the hot seat saw him as a threat. But what about us? What are we to make of these events from where we sit some 2,000 years later. If we're honest, we often find these events just as startling and unsettling. This whole episode almost seems out of character for Jesus, doesn't it? The picture of Mr. Turn the Other Cheek, Mr. Love Your Enemy, running strangers off with a whip of cords doesn't quite sit well, does it? What in the world is going on here? Part of the problem for us is the way the scene is portrayed in art and in movies. It's a scene that's fun to dramatize, right? I'm sure you've seen it. Jesus walks into the temple and he's startled by what he sees. The table's full of money changer buying and selling, a generally raucous, worldly atmosphere. Jesus is first sad, then the sadness quickly turns to anger, right? Then Jesus loses it. His face gets red and he throws the biggest hissy fit in history. He begins flipping over tables and running people off and yelling. It's like a rock star in a hotel room. Then, once he's got everyone's attention, he begins to rant and rave. He screams or sings in a high falsetto, depending on the version. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Now, while Jesus throwing a tantrum makes for good entertainment, 
it doesn't really conform to the gospel account. See, according to Mark, Jesus walked into the temple Sunday evening. He looked around, almost like he was casing the joint. Then he went home, and he came back the following day with a plan. Whatever Jesus did in the temple that Monday, it wasn't a hysterical reaction. It was something planned and thought out. It was calculated. Jesus showed up with a mission and a purpose, one that may be difficult for us to understand from where we sit 2,000 years later. Perhaps it would help us if we tried sitting somewhere else. Imagine for a moment you're sitting in a chair and the sky held aloft by angels, best seat in the house. Now you're overlooking the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The first thing you'll notice about the temple is just how massive it is. The temple that stood in Jesus' day is known as the Herodian Temple because it was updating and expanded during the reign of King Herod. The Herodian Temple was one of the wonders of the known world. People came from all over just to marvel at its architecture. But look close and you'll realize that for all its splendor, the temple is just a series of rectangles smaller ones inside of bigger ones. See, each of these rectangles is a court where different people could participate in worship. The smallest rectangle is called the holy place. This area stood behind a curtain and contained the holy of holies. This is where God was believed to dwell. No one was allowed to enter the holy of holies except for the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. Immediately outside the holy place was a raised platform called the Court of Priests. Here, the priests could be seen performing their sacrifices on behalf of the people. Just below this staging area what was, called, was what was called the Court of Israel. This was finally an area where non-priests could participate. This area was for the Jewish men who brought their sacrifices. There, they could stand and watch their sacrifices being made. Further out from that was the court of women, a sort of spectator section where Jewish women and children who were ritually clean could watch. Just outside of that was this large area called the court of nations, the court of the Gentiles. This was the large outer court where anybody could come and see what was going on in the temple and could be close to Israel's God. It didn't matter if you could afford a sacrifice. It didn't matter if you were disabled or unclean in some way. Anybody could come to the court of nations. Here, those in need of mercy could beg for alms. Rabbis could give instruction to people who wanted to know more about God. It was a place where everybody and anybody could worship and be close to God, except when it wasn't. With all that in mind, let's go back and try and imagine where Jesus is coming from. Let's take a moment and see if we can see the events from where he's sitting. Jesus is heartbroken by what he sees. He passes through the outer gate into the court of nations and expects to find ministry happening. Instead, 
He finds business. He expects to see rabbis instructing their followers and passerbys about the things of God. He expects to see the poor and the blind calling out from their mats and receiving mercy from strangers. He expects to see curious people from all walks of life looking up and gazing at the majesty of Israel's God. Instead, he sees rows and rows of tables where business is being conducted. Business at the expense of ministry. So, Jesus comes back the next day with a plan. One he knows full well is going to set the week's events into motion. In fact, he may not have been shocked at all. He may have been coming to Jerusalem expecting to do this all along. But in any case, he overturns the tables and runs off the money changers. But get this, he's not doing this in a peak of rage. He's clearing the tables to make room. According to Matthew, Jesus then goes and lets the poor and the blind and the lame back into the temple. He even heals them. And you know what? He doesn't shout anything. Sorry, he doesn't. Read our passage and you'll never find the word shout. The word you do find is teach. Jesus taught the people. For a rabbi like Jesus, teaching is something you do sitting down. See, he sits down and patiently explains the scroll of Jeremiah to them. He performs some healings, but he's not throwing a tantrum. He's teaching a lesson. Jesus is sitting down in the temple with all the people who have been cast out, not with the proud and the powerful, not with those too busy to look up, but with the hurting and vulnerable who hang on his every word. Imagine the scene with me once more. Now you're sitting somewhere else, somewhere far away from the action. You're sitting on your mat in some dusty alleyway. It's not your usual spot, but you're making do. See, when you were a teenager, you got sick. You were in bed with a fever for weeks. And when the fever finally left, you didn't have the use of your legs. Often, when you lay awake at night, you wonder why God punished you this way. You pray to be healed, but nothing happens. Every day you go to the temple and you cry for mercy. This has been your only means of support since your parents died. It was humiliating at first, but you got used to it. The people passing by pretending not to hear you. The occasional person looking past you as they toss change onto your blanket. You used to feel shame about all this. Now you feel nothing. You sit inside the court of nations and call out to people passing by. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Usually by the end of the day, you have enough for some bread. Now, if it's festival day, you have enough for some fish and some leftover. Everyone knows that pilgrims are the most generous givers. They come from far off places and they've, uh, they've got pockets full of coins and a spirit of goodwill in their hearts. 
See, after a week of festival begging, you usually have enough that you can stay home the following week. That's how it used to be anyway. The last couple of years, they've really cracked down. You showed up the first day of the festival, and you were run off. They told you that if you came back, you could be jailed. So you found this spot in the alleyway. There's nowhere as much traffic, and the people are nowhere as generous. Suddenly, you hear someone shouting your name. It's your friend, the one that always puts you in his cart. He's breathless. Did you hear? They're letting everyone back in. You ask him what he means. The temple. See, that rabbi is there. He's letting everyone back in the temple. Now, you know exactly who he's talking about. You saw him yesterday as you sat in your spot. From the alley, you saw him coming down the road on a donkey as people shouting hosannas and waved their palm branches. Your friend puts you in the back of his cart and wheels you to the temple. And he sets you on your mat. You look around and see that there is a crowd of people sitting around the rabbi. People you recognize, fellow beggars, and people you don't. They are transfixed. Like nothing else in the world matters to them but what this man is saying. You ask your friend to bring you closer to Rabbi Jesus. To let you sit at his feet. As you listen to his words, you feel a love and acceptance that you haven't felt in a long time. See, the way this man talks about God is amazing. He makes you feel like God isn't some angry, punishing old man behind a curtain somewhere, but a loving father who only wants what's best for his children. Jesus tells a story about a father who reunites with his son. Something in your heart breaks. You picture your own dad wrapping his arms around you. And you begin to cry. It's like, it's like you had never realized that your whole life, your heart had a wall around it. One you built stone by stone with each rejection, each sneer, each look of derision. And suddenly, that wall has come crashing down. The love of God has come flooding in. You're weeping uncontrollably now. As you're sobbing and looking down, You feel a hand on your shoulder. You look up. It's him. Rabbi Jesus. He's smiling at you. After years of begging, you've grown used to people, you know, sort of looking through you. But this man sees you. He kneels down and looks directly into your eyes. You wipe the tears. It's okay, he says. Your sins are forgiven.
Now you've tried to describe this next part to people, but you don't quite have the words. It's like, it's like that loving presence you're feeling in your heart begins to move. It begins to move, and, and now you feel it in your legs. This, this thing that was repairing your heart now begins strengthening your legs. Feel this intense warmth, then the tightening of muscles, then things sort of popping into place. Look up at Jesus, confused. <laughs> he laughs. Well, don't just sit there, get up. You do just that. You stand up. For the first time in 20 years, you stand up. Everyone around you claps and cheers, and, and Jesus has moved on to the next person. You look around you at your fellow beggars. The blind man is, is beaming at you. The deaf woman is, is covering her ears from the noise of the applause. The mute boy is, is, is yelling as he claps just to hear the sound of his voice. As you walk home carrying your mat, you still feel as if you're walking through a dream. But you know this is real. You've changed. Not just your legs. Everything. Everything has changed. All because you met someone. Someone who finally had mercy on you. You sat at the feet of Jesus and made all the difference. It makes a difference where you're sitting, where you set your vantage point, determines how you see an entire situation, doesn't it? So if you're busy at your table, just working, trying to get through your day, too busy to look up, Jesus is just a momentary distraction, another crazy and need of attention. If you're comfortable with the status quo, if you're singing in judgment against anyone who would demand change, he's a threat. But if you're singing at the feet of Jesus, another sinner in need of mercy, hanging on his every word, then he is a savior a redeemer and a friend. It makes a difference. It really does. So where are you sitting? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.